Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all of its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality in our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. An opening is a beginning, but it is also a whole. For now, we still enter the realm of gnos or gnosis of transcendental self-knowledge in one way only, by going down, not up, and mostly into popular modes of horror and science fiction. The contemporary realm of popular entertainment is our main subterranean entry, the grotto entry, to the boarded-up mansion of sacred awe, where we will conduct our primitive discourse on religious subjects, a discourse whose crudeness would horrify our pious ancestors, but nonetheless a discourse behind our own backs. To go higher, you must first go lower, but beware. Those in the know view the process as irreversible. What comes out of the hole, the hole that you must crawl into, will not be the same as what went in. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. It's a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today on this 28th day of October, as we loom towards All Hallows' Eve, and when the veil between the worlds is at its thinnest, we truly must count our blessings on this 156th broadcast of the show. Man, a whole month of Vallis and Philip K. Dick, meeting a couple of new sync friends, sharing conversations with some of our favorite guests. Well, that's it, such as it is, quite a fall, and to top that, We've been lucky enough to read from the dreaded Necronomicon for the whole month of October. Yet, before we cross paths with the Elf King and have Congress with the Night Gaunts, let us re-meet our guide to the grotesque, an individual who we first encountered back in episode number 78 in the spring of 2013. A vampire huntress of highest, highest caliber indeed. Truly, Doug here, and today we are pleased again to share another 42 minutes with the consummate grotto chronicler, Victoria Nelson, essayist and fiction writer. Her most recent work, Gothica, was published in 2012, and in the fall of 2013, she was the celebrity guest at the Radio 8 Ball Berkeley Sync Summit, hosted by Syncbook Press, audio of which can be found on Always Record number 67 uh, at thesyncbook.com. Today we consider her 2003 classic, The Secret Life of Puppets, published by Harvard University Press. It's one of those rare books that allows us to see the world not as we've seen it before, but as we see it daily without knowing it. 
Victoria Nelson illuminates the deep but hidden attraction the supernatural still holds for a secular mainstream culture that forced the transcendental underground and firmly displaced wonder and awe with the forces of reason, materialism, and science. Hello, Victoria. Welcome back. How are you? Hi, Doug. I'm great. I'm good to be here. Great. We first met you during Easter season. Halloween communicates another strange facet of Jesus. Jesus the mummy, Jesus the vampire, Jesus the zombie. Why does Jesus the monster somehow make sense for us? Well, I just think that it's part of uh, our country in particular, our, our knack for syncretic religion building. Uh, and as older religions start to fade away and kind of lose their immediacy, uh, they get fused into new kinds of, of combinations that really arise out of pop culture and this sort of bubbling brew of uh, mostly uh, supernatural monsters. And, you know, as I've said before, there's a reason for that. It's the Protestant Reformation kind of Satanized the supernatural in our culture, and that's why we have monsters uh, mainly as supernatural creatures and not and not uh, visions of Mary or, or visions of Krishna or, or whatever. At any rate, uh, zombies and vampires are, are the big thing now, uh, and Jesus says zombie is... <laughs> you can see the, the uh, images on the web, they're really, uh, really kind of amazing. The, the zombie last supper and uh, all these things. So, so it's, it, it's, it's just part of this kind of outrageous, but still, uh, in my view, not to be laughed at phenomenon of trying to reaccess the transcendental by whatever means. Okay, let me read a bit from The Secret Life of Puppets. Um, in these stories, he lays out his metaphysical position, which is deeply platonic, that which we mistake for objective reality, that is, the empirical world of the senses, is always trembling on the point of disintegration. Reality, he says, is as thin as paper and betrays with all its cracks its imitative character. His great disquisition on the union of spirit and matter takes place in a group of four mock expositions collectively entitled Taylor's Dummies, which asserts that inanimate objects, as illustrated by the dressmaker's mannequins in the family's attic, possess a life and spirit of their own. I'm not familiar with this Philip K. Dick story. Which, which collection is that in? That's not Philip K. Dick. That's the great Polish-Jewish writer Bruno Schultz. It kind of sounds like Philip K. Dick, though. Oh, yes, there are some subterranean similarities, I think, although, uh, I, I don't know, I, I would see them as being really different in a lot of other ways, but, but yes, they both have this fascination with what um, lies above and beneath. I would say that Philip K. Dick did a much, uh, was much more consciously and explicitly into it in his visions and his exegesis on his, um, you know, great visionary moment uh, back in 1973 and so on and so on. But Schultz was a between-the-wars uh, Polish-Jewish writer who uh, 
was fascinated by mannequins and puppets and, well, maybe not puppets per se, but the, the idea that, that all matter is, is somehow animated and alive. Uh, and he would worry about things like whether the grains of wood, uh, different grains of wood in a piece of ch in, in a chair, would would have problems with each other because <laughs> they were from different tree, you know, kinds of trees and so on. But anyway, that's Bruno Schulz. That's fascinating. We just spent a month on Philip K. Dick and Vallis in September. And so we're just, I'm, I'm curious about your relationship to Vallis, both as art and as a mystical document. Well, um, I would have to say I, I came to it kind of late in the game, and so it's not uh, as much a part of my bloodstream as some of these other writers that I, I talk about are. Uh, what I love about Philip K. Dick, I actually, to be completely, truthfully honest with you, I'd rather read the exegesis than the novels. <laughs> and, and is that because the novels just... Shocking as that might sound. Is it... I mean, so there's... Uh, and I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, as the saying goes, I don't grok the, the, his, his literary ability as much as I do his thinking. Gotcha. Just a preference. But I, I love the fact that out of that one moment uh, in, in 1973, he spun out this elaborate spider web, and he didn't shirk from doing the deep reading and hard research into all the you know, philosophical and religious theories of the late antiquity period of Western culture, and also that he was perfectly willing to be balanced on this knife edge between uh, did it really happen or was it just a hallucination or a projection of his own consciousness. Well, so uh, two weeks ago we had Dr. Jeffrey Kripal on and we talked about the idea of the authors of the impossible, the imagination writing reality. What are your thoughts on that subject? Um, I guess... Um, I find it an, an, an interesting concept. It's it's one that doesn't come entirely naturally to me. I guess I'm not. I'm never. I'm not ever quite sure if Jeff is saying, like Dick is saying one thing or the other. If he's he's saying that yes, um, what we uh, create in our minds can actually shape external material reality or whether he's using it as a kind of metaphor for the way that all writers, you know, think up ideas and stories and then write them down. Uh, I think Jeff also wants to communicate the idea that things like paranormal activity are part of this creative process. Um, I haven't sort of Pinned him down on exactly how that how that works in terms of uh, you know do you have measurable um, uh, things that happen in the outside world? I mean he would say he would say yes, but he's mainly there in the 
in the places where he talks about Dick, uh, really uh, talking about literary texts, and that's more it's a little more ephemeral, I think, than when you're looking at regular paranormal activity, which he also does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, very brilliantly, I think, when he discusses the uh, uh, visions of Our Lady of Fatima in uh, Newtons and Mystics, and shows, you know, just uh, almost uh, irrefutably that this connects uh, very closely to um, uh, descriptions of UFO um, uh, phenomena. Well, he wrote a wonderful book about Esalen and the 60s and that whole blossoming of the counterculture that kind of happened there in the Bay Area. And you're in the Bay Area. Have you ever been there to the hot springs and to the the grounds? Oh, yes. Um, You know, I was around here in uh, the 60s and a little bit of the 70s when Esalen was Starting, and I was kind of dimly aware of it down there. And then, as some of the great revolutionary um, and exciting trends, uh, particularly in psychology and the human potential movement, started coming out of it, that I I heard about them and was very influenced by some of the uh, figures and writing. I I never went to Esalen until Jeffrey Kripal started started inviting me to some wonderful symposiums, uh, and I've now been to about four of them um, down there. Uh, the founder, Michael Murphy, uh, and in collaboration with Jeffrey, holds these think tanks where scholars and artists and um, writers and scientists all convene uh, and give papers on a specific topic. and have a wonderful interchange. Um, And I would say it wasn't until I read Jeff's book that I fully understood just how central Esalen was to all kinds of movements and philosophical thinking and psychological and scientific investigations into the paranormal and all of these things, just how what a hotbed Esalen really was. People tend to think of it as the sort of the new age, you know, naked hot springs, but it's really <laughs> so much more than that. It really is. Um, and, um, and it's still going strong. It's still going strong after 50 years. Uh, um, so, uh, so I, I, this last uh, meeting, oh, I should say one of the meetings I think that would have that bears on what you're talking about was the very first one I went to, and it was a convocation of comic book, graphic novel writers and artists, scholars, scientists of the paranormal. And uh, the subject under discussion really was the paranormal in graphic novels uh, and, and in popular culture, and there were some rather staggering examples of uh, "Quote unquote, or maybe no quote, synchronous uh, uh, outer world act, you know, incidents and phenomena that um, uh, were clearly also linked to things the uh, the comic book uh, writers and artists were doing. So that was that was really great. That was the first one, and there have been others. Wow. Well, in 
the Secret Life of Puppets, you you note that to be a writer in, in America is to write in the realistic style, and that the fantastic is definitely considered a lower form. Is that still the case? I mean, you wrote that book in 2003. Is the fantastic coming in into higher art? I think, yes, I think there's definitely um, been a change in those years uh, since the 1990s uh, uh, when I was really thinking about <laughs> thinking about it um, uh, and looking at it in as a 20th century phenomenon. I do think the 21st century is really, really different um, and we'll see the sort of new outlines emerging. I see it now most clearly. This uh, as a there are a lot of writers now who don't keep literary writers who don't keep the uh, boundaries between high and quote unquote high and low and genre and literary fiction and so on and so on. And yes, the uh, fantastic in the sense of a kind of supernatural. Uh, element is is getting uh, uh, it's certainly not the norm, but it's certainly not being dismissed out of hand as pulp fiction or whatever by uh, those in the establishment and the mainstream. Um, I see it more clearly in high art film at this point than I do in novels and short stories where there's still a, a kind of pretty strong boundary. Um, but um, yeah, it's changing. It's, it's definitely changing. This is a new century with a new sensibility. Uh, I think it's really exciting now because I think that what we're doing is uh, by allowing that element back into mainstream culture and not dismissing it, uh, we're allowing for a much richer kind of clash, amalgamation, whatever you want to call it. I, I, in the puppet book, I made a kind of sweeping uh, argument that eras where gnosis and episteme, the sort of rational uh, empirical discourse, that eras where both were up on the surface at the same time as in the Renaissance uh, or as in late antiquity were, were much richer cultural periods than those when either one or the other predominated. I, I guess it's time to switch gears a little bit. I'm wondering about H.P. Lovecraft. I keep finding his influence. I mean, I myself have never really gotten into him, um, but everywhere I turn, I find his influence in a lot of real-world ways as far as religions and stuff, but also in artistic ways as well. I was wondering if you could teach us something about this man. Huh. Well, maybe start with grotesque and where that word comes from. Okay. Well, that's that's a long discussion in itself, but it... <laughs> Sorry. I'll just really, really quickly. Uh, grotesque, the word grotesque, is the adjective of grotto, which means cave. Um, and the way it came into our culture was, in the Renaissance, they excavated uh, Nero's, the Roman Emperor Nero's uh, 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 
Doma Aria, Golden Dome, this beautiful palace. And there, it was deep underground by that time because, you know, layers of silt and soil had built up. And they uncovered these passages where, in the art of Nero's time, they had, there was a certain style where animal bodies and human heads and all kinds of strange, fantastical creatures were represented. It was just a style of that period. So they dug down, they found this art that they hadn't really been that familiar with before and were totally struck by it. And because it came from underground, from the, quote, grottos, uh, uh, they, they call this kind of art grotesque. And so from that point on, anything that was uh, sort of strange and fantastical and not of this world had the uh, word grotesque appended to it. Now, Lovecraft is such an interesting character because, of course, in his lifetime, he was a complete, invisible, non-entity, pulp fiction writer who also helped other writers write their stories, and uh, with the result that there are a lot of sort of quasi-Lovecraft stories floating around that have other authors' names on them. It really wasn't until about the 70s that um, there was a little movement to really take him more seriously than before, but still it was it was kind of fan based and and lacking in uh, you know high critical legitimacy, all the kinds of you know stuff that goes on in a <laughs> high literary world. Uh, I find myself using saying quote unquote a lot, but that's really kind of reflecting my own you know. Uh, ironic feelings about it. So, but, but at the same time, Lovecraft was deeply, deeply influencing several generations of writers and filmmakers. Filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro, filmmakers like, well, Ridley Scott got it in Alien through the Swiss artist H.H. H. Giger, who designed the alien creature. Uh, very uh, overtly as a as a Lovecraftian um, uh, uh, monster, and as you can see, the alien creature became the template for uh, dozens of of other uh, 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 creatures. Right down, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, the creature in Predator is a complete ripoff. <laughs> Of Kinker, I will just say, and and so are other monsters. So, so there was already this, you know, it was starting to spread and spread and spread in pop culture, and just I think in the last ten or fifteen years, then you get sort of mainstream critics noticing him. Uh, there's a French writer named Huilbeck who's sort of um, made Lovecraft a byword and. In the French world, um, but that begs the question of why? Why is Lovecraft so uh, popular? I didn't read Lovecraft as a kid. Um, I came across him as an adult, and at first, when I started reading Lovecraft, I just thought this is so over the top. But as I kept reading, there's something about his style, and I feel 
much more this way. I, I got into Lovecraft in a way I never could get into Philip K. Dick, and I'm not quite sure why. But he is one of those one-of-a-kind writers who not only creates his own world, but he has his own really Baroque literary style, and 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 it, it, it all kind of merges together into this just very, very distinctive um, uh, worldview and style and so on. And so people, people get sucked into Lovecraft the way they get sucked into uh, writers like James Joyce. It's a whole universe that you can take up residence in. And, um, uh, uh, and I know a lot of people who do. I know a lot of people who do. And out of this universe has come this massive pop cultural phenomenon. It's just uh, from, you know, uh, Japanese uh, uh, Kululu toys, you know, cuddly toys. Kululu being the, the great uh, Lovecraft. The How do you say it again? Because I've heard different pronunciations. Okay, so. here's the correct pronunciation from the master's voice himself. It's not Cthulhu. As it looks on the page, it's Klulu. So Klulu? Be, cool, be cool and say Klulu. <laughs> As a clueless, Klulu. <laughs> Klulu, wow. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard people, including myself, just butcher the mess out of that. So I'm glad you set us straight. <laughs> well, only, only, I suppose, only the real, uh, the real Lovecraft freaks would make that distinction. So I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Uh, so, well, what do you so think? Do you think some of the production, what has come out of Lovecraft, is it necessarily like? I mean, uh, I think about Anton Lavey and stuff like that. I mean, some of this stuff is a perhaps yeah. could be called dangerous. Yes, definitely. People have taken up uh, Lovecraft uh, and and zoomed it into into the satanic. Realms, although LaVey, what LaVey did, he would argue that Church of Satan, which was this 60s and 70s church, um, uh, uh, that they and a lot of 20th century Satanists say Satan is not a, an evil uh, figure at all. That's just Christian propaganda. Satan is really this. Uh, neutral uh, nature, nature force, and so on. Um, but yes, yeah, so some of the some of the uh, spiritual groups and practices that have grown up around the writings of Lovecraft uh, uh, look a little <laughs> a little strange. Others others fit more into a kind of the same pattern that a lot of neo pagan uh, spiritual practice groups follow, and there's a, a lot of overlapping between these groups. I, I talked about it a little bit in Gothica. Um, so, yes, it's a very dark world of monstrosity that Lovecraft creates. And I think after a while, you know, when you're immersed in it, you you began to have this feeling that you'd like to surface back into the sunshine again. Uh, uh, but, again, I think part of the problem, and this it's a very 20th century problem that I think is being 
solved in different ways in this century. Part of the problem is the our our own culture's 300-year association of the supernatural with evil monsters. So what you get happening in this century, the 21st century, is that uh, people using the materials they're given, all these monsters, vampires, zombies, etc., start to rewrite the narrative and turn it into a narrative of the bright instead of the dark. So that's really where Twilight, the Twilight series comes in, because they're really, uh, uh, Stephanie Meyer uh, using, in, in my view, uh, a lot of Mormon theology about the afterlife, uh, gives us these vampires as uh, at least the ones that her heroine Bella comes into contact with, is these really perfect divine humans who enjoy really enjoy divinity on earth, they're immortal, uh, they're beautiful, they work for the good. Um, and uh, so, so you see this kind of brightening twin, uh, trend. Uh, there's a twilight religion that I've been very interested in. It's not a very big one, uh, but there are people who use the twilight before uh, Twilight novels as a kind of scripture, uh, and they worship uh, the various members of the Cullen family, the vampires that Bella marries into, according to their attributes. Uh, they uh, have a little Twi church check-in online. Uh, again, this is not a huge phenomenon, but I see it as a kind of marker that people are taking the old monsters and trying to make, um, a, a, you know, brighter divinities out of them. As you say this, I think about the door in the sky, and and that's kind of so. Dark City was such a dark film, but then there is this this hope. Yeah. And same, could you speak to that a little bit? Well, uh, uh, Dark City and some of those other movies like um, uh, The Truman Show and so on uh, uh, that came out of the last years of the 20th century, I think, were, were harbingers of this, this kind of um, new movement of turning, brightening, brightening the... Um, the gothic brightening uh, horror. Now that said, horror as a genre still survives in its completely unreconstructed, horrific, bloody, gory, you know, downer, uh, wonderful mode. Uh, but uh, uh, but this other trend is what I see as really being kind of the tip off of a different kind of sensibility, a new kind of religion building too. Well, let's take this someplace strange into the speculative. We a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had. <laughs> We're gonna get strange. Where are you gonna go with it now, Doug? <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest on, and she is a hip hop dance reporter. And the thing that has struck me for a long time. This is going to sound strange, but Boise has hosted a world class dance troupe for the past seven years, and this troupe is. They're ballet dancers, but they're conveying something else about us that I find so strange that embodies this kind of digital automaton robotic type moment that we're in. Mm 
And I just wonder if you could speak to that idea because of the puppets in the book. And well, that, that is strange. Do you, have you ever thought about the way dance is conveyed right now and what that says about us? Well, I, I have to admit I'm not, I'm not really up on the dance scene. Uh, you sent me some of those uh, videos, and uh, uh, I love the hip-hop twins. And uh, who's, what's the name of the other the young woman who does the sort of robot-type dances? Uh, There's a video right now by, I think the artist's name is Sia. Sia, that's it. And then, so she has some young female dancer, and you can tell that the young... that's not Sia, the dancer herself. She looked like she's about 13. Yeah, Yeah. but obviously she's a dancer. She's... she's, uh, But then there's also all these strange, bizarre, almost puppet-like movements. Oh, you're messing with my head. Have you seen the new uh, Avengers 2 trailer that just came out? It was real big on the internet recently. Like, it came out, it leaked, and then it was just tossed all over social media. But, of course, the new movie's called Age of Ultron, which is this artificial intelligence that the Avengers create and then have to battle themselves. It's complete on-world. But the whole trailer, which is only about two minutes, is Ultron basically talking about strings. He's like, look, no strings. I'm not a puppet. And I just made that connect on how that, what you're talking about, Douglas, with the whole, the computer age, puppetry, and technology is like really clicking in my head right now. Yeah, well, I would say, I mean, on the, um, on that front, Will, um, a lot of what I was writing about in Secret Life of Puppets was this idea that we projected our soul onto these um, human simulacra and that they've gone through this technological upgrade from puppets to robots to cyborgs to avatars um, and onto them we project these qualities of uh, immortality, perfectibility, uh, there's a whole trope where the puppet becomes independent of its master, revolts against the master, and then uh, goes on to become far better than the master. That's in the Terminators, old Terminator series uh, as well. Frankenstein, uh, in a way. Well, he's not, I don't know that he's presented as better. He's, he's, well, there's just this moral play between him and the doctor. The doctor ends up being just as much as a monster as Frankenstein, in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly that's that's a point there that that Frankenstein, in many ways, is a victim of his circumstances, and the doctor is the one. The doctor is the one who's responsible, and and I I do feel that in the flip over in the Enlightenment, what used to be considered the sorcerer in our culture became the mad scientist. So it's the mad scientist who uh, can do all of these, you know, supernatural things, and then is you know destroyed by his own hubris and his own and his own pride. Um, let's see, what was I going to say about the um, the hip hop dancers? Band- I just would say, you know, dance is ritual, and uh, I don't know what these kind of automaton 
type imitation things are all about because I'm not that familiar with the dance world. Um, I think it's great. I love I love I love those clips. Uh, it reminded me there was a great great uh, uh, ballet version of E.T.A. Hoffman's story, The Sandman, which is about an artifact a, 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 a mad scientist who creates a his daughter is actually an automaton, and the hero falls in love with her, called Coppelia. And um, the ballet is called Coppelia, and this wonderful German avant-garde troupe did Coppelia, only they had morphed her into like, I don't know, like 30. So there were these 30, you know, bobbling female uh, automatons on the stage, and it, and it was quite a, it's quite a, uncanny effect and as you know Freud that's Freud's definition of the uncanny uh, he got from uh, uh, reading somebody's account of the Sandman and the sense that when you look at a human simulacrum some uh, you know a toy or a puppet or a machine that's tricked out to look like a human being you get this just strange feeling you know uh, your skin kind of the you get goosebumps and so on, the strange feeling of seeing something that looks human but that isn't human. Um, and uh, it used to be that we worshipped uh, human simulacra. We worshipped statues. Uh, they were considered to have divine qualities. And I guess my argument is that some of the uncanny feeling we have for um, human simulacra today is, is a residual of that feeling, that we do project these uh, other qualities onto them. Well, part of the construction of the golem is that we pin, we pin our hopes on them. That somehow they're going to protect us and, and make things better. I'm wondering if AI is like the new golem and that it does in the golem stories, don't they end up, they have to be destroyed because they become too big or too powerful or something. Usually what happens is that they just, they, they go out of control and they break loose from their human master and then they just start wreaking uh, destruction. That's the old version of the golem. With AI, my comment would, on that would be that um, people who are in the IT world, cyber theorists and so on, in my opinion, although they're very learned in their field, they're incredibly naive about religion, philosophy, and all of these other areas that they have no background in. And as a result, they tend to project onto the computer and its byproducts all manner of quasi-divine qualities. You know, I can't tell you how many newspaper articles I've read about a new computer that's going to conquer time and space. You know, are you kidding me? All you have to do is <laughs> plug it. <laughs> And there you are. And then there are these guys like Ray Kurzweil, who has this notion that there's going to be a new species called Robo-Sapiens in another 50 years. It's going to be an amalgam of human and um, AI intelligence. And again, to me, this is, this is a, a completely naive projection of, um, of actually very ancient ideas. Uh, onto this very, very mechanical um, construct. And uh, one thing I was noticing in, in my last uh, 
uh, stay at Esalen, which was just last week ago, last week, and we were talking about um, the imagination, is over and over again, all of us were saying about consciousness, okay, then we download this and we download that, and um, uh, what's the other common one that we use? In other words, without even thinking about it, we're using the kind of 18th century clockwork meta mechanistic metaphor for how our brains and our consciousness function. It's absolutely pervasive. Everyone uh, talks about the brain and consciousness as, as if it were a computer, and boy, is that ever not the case. <laughs> so, so there's a kind of, right now I feel there's this very deep sort of materialistic bias, uh, mechanistic bias that really keeps us from truly understanding what consciousness is. Well, so we're winding down. What is capturing your attention these days? Are you really geeking out about anything fun? Um, well, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm embarking on a third book that will probably take me about another ten years to write. Just like oh no! <laughs> what is this about? Well, oh gosh, uh, you know, I'll just I'll say it's about allegory, old and new, and allegory is. A, complete total turn off and I won't even try to describe what I'm doing with that you know literary device but if I have time guys I would like to give you a wonderful synchronicity from from we'd, the old days we'd, we'd love it yeah go ahead oh please yes okay this is going to reveal how old I am but anyway um, <laughs> I was a very 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 young precocious student at Berkeley uh, when JFK was the day uh, JFK was assassinated, and I was on campus, and it was really—you cannot imagine the horror of that day and that moment. It just was inconceivable that a president of the United States could be assassinated. So, at the end of that very long day, um, uh, and I'll just mention in passing that. The headline in the newspaper was "Shots Heard in the Vicinity of Dallas." That was as close as they could come in the newspapers of those days to President shot in Dallas, if you can imagine such a thing. So anyway, that evening, just to kind of get away from it all, I went to the. There was a revival of Alfred Hitchcock's *The Thirty Nine Steps* showing at the local art theater, and that's a story of how German spies used this vaudeville memory man to convey uh, secret messages uh, back and forth to each other. Uh, so we're in the vaudeville theater with the hero and uh, someone in the audience gets up and says, Mr. Memory, how many presidents of the United States have been assassinated? <laughs> and our audience just gasped, just gasped. And Mr. Memory goes on to say, three Three presidents of the United States were assassinated, and he lists them, and we're all thinking, oh no, it's four. Now it's four. As of today, it's four. And that's, that's, that's a synchronicity that has stayed with me for now, it's unbelievable, 50 years. I love it. I love it. Because, I mean, we, we deal a lot with, like, uh, 
there's been a lot of talk about things that were pointing to the assassination of Kennedy before the assassination of Kennedy. Uh-huh. So this is this is it's almost like remembering the future or whatever. Yeah. And the fact that the guy's name was Mr. Memory, it's really poignant. Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. That was 42 minutes. Great. That was. <laughs> we ended on the dot. Super. <laughs> Thank you for sharing it with us. Okay. Thank you, Doug. You've been listening to Victoria Nelson on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. You can find more information about her work at Harvard University Press. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and, com- and consider, please, setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And in his house at Rayleigh, dead Klulu waits dreaming. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
It's a new day and the stars are right. Wake up, Lil Cthulhu, it's time to play. Lil Cthulhu lives in the magic city of Relay with all his friends. Relay is usually under the big blue ocean, but when the stars are right, Relay rises and the great old ones can come to Earth and play. Uh-oh, Lil Cthulhu is hungry after his long nap. What does he do? He eats his followers. They love Cthulhu and want to be eaten. Their souls make his tummy happy. Lil Cthulhu is best friends with Dagon and all the other deep ones. They plan to go to Innsmouth to visit all the nice fish people there. The fish people chant praises. Chant, chant, chant. Hear them chant. Ya Dagon. Ya Cthulhu. But Cthulhu goes to Egypt to see Lil Narlothotep. He's called the Crawling Chaos because he can't walk yet. They have fun reading the Necronomicon. Oops! Cthulhu accidentally summons Yogg-Sothoth, master of the gates between worlds. He's mad because little Cthulhu woke him up. Yogg-Sothoth sends him to Yugoth. Yugoth is where the Migo live. They are like big bees with glowing heads. But little Cthulhu is lost. How can he get back home? He meets Hastur the Unspeakable. Cthulhu doesn't like him because he's smelly. But Hastur lets him borrow his bike to help him get home. Maybe he's not so bad after all, little Cthulhu thinks. flying to the center of ultimate chaos. He sees Azathoth, the blind idiot god and master of all creation and destruction, who rides endlessly to the pounding of vile drums and blasphemous wine of thin reeds. It's too loud for little Cthulhu. Finally, they get back home to Earth. Little Cthulhu wants to play more, but the stars are changing. Relay is sinking again and it's time to go to bed. Little Cthulhu is tired from his exciting day and goes back to sleep in his house. Maybe next time the stars will be right longer and he can have even more fun. And even now he sleeps in his house under the sea, dreaming his dark designs outside of space and time until the stars are right once more. Good night, little Cthulhu.
Thank mm-hmm. you.